0: Man, Good morning, Harvest. You can go ahead and have a seat. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest Annapolis as an associate pastor. And whether you're joining us in person this morning or you're tuning in online, we're just so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. We want to we wanna welcome you as well as we can. I'd love to meet you after the service if you are visiting, and we also have a, a gift for you out in the lobby. Uh, Pastor Dan this morning is up in Quarryville, Pennsylvania, serving one of our uh, Great Commission Collective Sister Churches, uh, Oak Hill Fellowship Church, as they celebrate their 14th anniversary as a church. So he's gone there to uh, celebrate with them and serve them this morning, and we're thankful for their partnership in the gospel. Let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you like to use to get your eyes on God's Word. Would you meet me this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 13? 1 Samuel 13. We're continuing our Heart of the Matter sermon series going verse by verse through the book of 1 Samuel. And we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, We're looking at three chapters, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, And even if you don't have a Bible with you, I would still really invite you and encourage you and and challenge you to find some way uh, to get God's Word open in front of you so you can follow along with us. There's a couple of ways you could do that. You could just Google uh, 1 Samuel 13 ESV on a smartphone. You can pull that out and it'll pop right up. I'm sure someone around you would be more than happy to share their copy of God's Word with you, or if you'd prefer a paper Bible, we have some in the back on the table back there that you could make use of. And if you don't have one at all, we would just love for you to take one of those and keep it as our gift to you. But again, 1 Samuel 13 through 15 this morning. And as you're turning there, let's let's just stop and pray again. As Bryce just prayed, let's let's stop and pray for our time together in God's Word. Father, we are again so thankful. That we can come here to worship you this morning. We love you. And as we come to your word now, as we just sung, Father, would you magnify your Son as we look at your word? That we would be, our perspective would be changed as He is magnified. Father, as He prayed in John 17, your word is truth, so sanctify us in the truth. Believe that every word of Scripture is inerrant, inspired, and profitable for doctrine and reproof and training in righteousness. So Father, as we look at your word, would you be moving among us to challenge us and encourage us and equip us to make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ? Father, would we decrease in this moment and would he increase? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been said that there are two kinds of people in the world. There's chess people and checkers people, uh, or as they're otherwise known, maybe you've heard it put this way, there's Jeopardy people and Wheel of Fortune people. If you think about it enough, you, you laugh, but you know exactly which one you are. And if you don't know, just ask your spouse. They'll help you, uh, they'll help you figure that out. Uh, as much as I would like to convince myself that I'm one of those refined chess people, uh, the reality is I grew up uh, playing checkers with my grandmother in her dual-purpose garage slash entertainment room. And in a way that only larger-than-life grandmothers can, I can distinctly remember from a very early age her teaching me that when when one of your checkers pieces makes it all the way to the other end of the board, to, to your opponent's side of the board, as loudly and proudly as you want, you get to yell what? King me, right? We've all said it, king me. And so I did. And it didn't matter how bad I was losing every opportunity to yell, king me, was an opportunity worth taking, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure every kid who's ever played checkers with anyone has taken the opportunity to put their own creative spin on the phrase, king me. Here's the thing, though, is as cute as the phrase, king me, is coming from a child playing checkers, it's extremely dangerous when that child grows up and adopts the phrase, king me, as their philosophy for life. Even though most adults don't walk around yelling, King me, when they want to get their way on something, it's extremely dangerous when they start living like King me. See, if we're not careful, the King me mentality can creep into our lives and and leave a path of destruction behind us before we even realize it's there. And that's what we're going to see happening in Saul's life in 1 Samuel 13 through 15. What we see in our passage this morning is is King Saul's fall from uh, from his position, really caused by King me. He hadn't even been king for all that long, but already at this point in his reign, the seemingly humble and almost even reluctant Saul that we saw back at his coronation in chapter 10, where he was like hiding in the luggage because he didn't want the attention drawn to himself, that Saul is long gone. As my grandmother would say, Saul's gotten a little bit too big for his britches. What Saul apparently never learned is that before you're ever in authority, you've got to learn to be under authority because ultimately it doesn't matter if you are a a king or a construction worker, a senator or a soldier, a pastor or a parent. At the end of the day, regardless of your plot or position in life, every single one of us is ultimately under the authority of God. So even more specifically, if you're a Christian here this morning, the reality is that Jesus is not only the savior of your life, he is also your king. He demands your allegiance and your obedience. The question for us is, are you living like Jesus is your king this morning? Or are you living like King me? If you're taking notes, here's our big idea this morning, our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage that'll tie it together for us. Here's what I want us to walk away from as we look at these three chapters this morning. Our big idea is this, King Jesus and King me can't reign on the throne of my heart at the same time. That King Jesus and King me can't reign on the throne of my heart at the same time. Because here's the reality, there's a little King me that's living inside of every single one of us. And King me desperately wants to push King Jesus aside and take over the rule of our lives. And so as people who, who desperately want to live under the rule and reign of the good King Jesus, we need to do everything that we can to locate King me where he's showing up in our lives and then send him into exile permanently. So we want to live under King Jesus. And so as we look at the fall of Saul in these three chapters this morning, in order to help us find King Me in our lives. I want us to look at four characteristics of King Me. So if you're ready, let's go. Here's the first one. Number one, King Me takes matters into my own hands when God's timing isn't enough. The King Me takes matters into my own hands when God's timing isn't enough. We see this in the first 16 verses of chapter 13. And since we have so much ground to cover in these chapters this morning, we're going to be reading every single verse, but I would would challenge you to go back maybe this afternoon and and spend some time reading all of chapters 13 through 16. What we're going to be doing is we're taking kind of the 30,000-foot view approach, and since I just watched Top Gun this week, we're going to be zooming down in and, and pulling out some very specific applications where we see King me showing up in Saul's life. So for some context, here's what's going on where we pick up in 1 Samuel 13. See, Saul is king, he's been king for a while now, and just a couple of chapters ago, he had been leading an army of over 330,000 men. But for whatever reason, he sent the vast majority of those soldiers home, and only 3,000 of them are left to divide between him and his son, Jonathan. The enemy that they're facing here is the Philistines, and they're posing a very real and present threat to the Israelites. And when you think of battles in the Old Testament, you can't really think of battles in terms of modern warfare like we do, where we deploy troops halfway around the world and, and fight at a distance. Instead, I want you to think Civil War battlefield. It's like if you've ever been to, to Gettysburg or Antietam or Manassas or any of the, the Civil War battlefields that are within driving distance of us here, you know one thing about those battlefields. They're incredibly close and together. There's not a whole lot of room. And so instead of launching attacks from an aircraft carrier... It's more like one side was over here by the barn, and then the other side was like a couple fields away by the house over here, and that's how close they are. So picture that at the beginning of chapter 13, because that's what's going on here. The Philistines have a camp less than three miles from God's people. One day, Jonathan and his 1,000 men that were assigned to him attacked the Philistine camp and won that battle, and that's awesome but also by doing that, they kicked the proverbial hornet's nest because now when the rest of the Philistines heard about what happened, they were not happy, to say the least. Verse 4 says that the Israelites became a stench to the Philistines. Then in verse 5 says that when the rest of the Philistines showed up to the fight, they brought with them 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore. And all God's people said, "Uh uh-oh. Saul called in more reinforcements, but this is not looking good here. Here's what verses 6 through 7 say. 6 and 7 say this, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, that people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people following him trembled. So they're scared and they're hiding anywhere they can. And some of them are even running away. And here's where King Me starts to show up in the passage. See, Back in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel had given Saul some very clear instructions about what to do when he got to Gilgal, which again, which we just read, he's at Gilgal now. And Samuel had given him instructions. Here's what they were. He said, go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days shall you wait until I come to you and show you what to do. In other words, don't do anything. Let me repeat that. Don't do anything until I get there, Saul. Got that? Are we clear? Don't do anything until I get there, Saul. But here's King Me. If you have your Bible open, look at chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Here's King Me showing up. It says, he, that's Saul, waited seven days... The time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Some people say that it had been over two years since Samuel had given those instructions, but regardless, he had been very, very clear with Saul. Again, go down to Gilgal, wait for me. Don't do anything, don't take matters in your hands, just wait for me and don't touch anything. And let's just be clear here, that's, that's not just a suggestion. When Samuel spoke, he was speaking on behalf of God himself with the very authority of God. But Saul felt the pressure. He felt the, the walls closing in around him. He, he could have been like, you know, there's, there's a whole army of people over there, and they're, they're just waiting to kill all of us. My people are freaking out. They're, they're starting to run away and desert things. Things are getting worse by the minute, and, and, and Samuel didn't show up. He's late. I mean, I, I want him to do his little sacrifice thing. I really do, but, but I don't have time for this right now. Things are getting worse. So I've called him. I've texted him. I've sent people to go look for him, and, and he's not coming. So guess what? I'm in charge. I'm the king. I'm gonna do what I want to do now. Samuel's not coming, so I'm in charge. It's time for me to make something happen. So Saul took matters into his own heart, his own hands. Instead of obeying the Lord, he offered the sacrifice for himself. And of course, as he was cleaning up from from offering the sacrifice, Samuel showed up. Here's the thing: Samuel wasn't late, Saul was impatient. God's timing wasn't enough for him. He, he felt the pressure of his situation, and it got the best of him. You ever feel the pressure? Ever feel like you're, you're, you're trying to wait on God you, to show up and work? You, you really, really are, but, but things are not going so well right now. You feel like the walls are starting to close in around you, and it's hard, isn't it? It's hard when things aren't going the way you think they should, and your family and your, your kids aren't growing spiritually the way that you really want them to. And so you look around you and you just want to grab the people around you and just force them to do what you know they need to do as if you could change their hearts, right? It's hard when you feel like your career is passing you by because your coworkers take ethical shortcuts to keep climbing the ladder while you feel like you're stuck at the bottom because you're the only one that shows up to work and tries to work with any bit of integrity. It's hard when you've prayed and longed for something or so, someone for, for years and you're just tired of waiting. And you wonder if God even hears. It's hard when you feel the pressure, and you're getting tired, and you're convinced that somewhere along the way God has lost his calendar. See, what this is really about here is it's about waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is never fun, but it's also never without a purpose. Those times and seasons in our life when God is calling us to wait on him are because it's in the waiting on him that he is working on us. And as hard, as painful as that might seem, it's all part of his plan for our sanctification to lead us to trust him more and to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. I love this quote from Ray Ortland. Ray Ortland is a retired pastor who is now a a pastor to pastors, and he's, he's an incredible encouragement to me. He says this, so many times the Old Testament calls us to wait on the Lord, but that's not waiting in a hammock sipping iced tea. That's waiting in the plank position until the coach says, you're done. Just think about that. Waiting comes with pain. It's an exercise. And if we can grasp that picture of waiting on the Lord, it can radically transform how we wait on the Lord when his timing doesn't seem to be enough for us. It's not without purpose. God is never early and he's also never late he knows exactly what he's doing and it's up to us to trust him instead of taking matters into our own hands when King Me decides to show up in our lives. But King Me got the best of Saul. When he was confronted, he, he deflected and he blame shifted and he made excuses and he did all of the things that you do when you're, when you're confronted with your sin. But ultimately he had disobeyed God and he had to face the consequences. Samuel told him that he had acted foolishly. And in verse 14, he said, your kingdom shall not continue. Saul, God's already found your replacement. He's he's been looking for, for a man after his own heart, and that's not you, and he's already found your replacement. Those are some serious but necessary consequences. At that point, Samuel left Saul and Jonathan there with only 600 men left. The rest had all run away, and still they're facing down an army again like the sands of the seashore. Saul's not done being King Me. So first, King Me takes matters into his own hands when God's timing isn't enough. Second, this morning, second characteristic, King Me tries to reap the benefits of others living full of faith. The King Me tries to reap the benefits of others living full of faith. And we see that from, from chapter 13, verse 17 through fourteen twenty-three. And what the author's really trying to do in this section is he's, he's, he's showing us a very clear contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Things are still at a standstill between the Israelites and the Philistines at the end of chapter 13, but we're not left wondering what life was like in that time. The Philistines were occupying and dominating the entire territory. They've, they've sent out troops to control all of the, the roads around the territory so, so Saul and his men can't get reinforcements or supplies or anything. They've, they've shut the whole thing down. They've even made, it, made sure that there are no blacksmiths operating in Israel because they don't want the Israelites going to a blacksmith to start making weapons. And if they did need to go to a blacksmith to, to get their, their farm tools sharpened and things like that, they had to go to a Philistine blacksmith who would charge them an arm and a leg and make sure that that tool couldn't be used as a weapon. They're shutting everything down. Verse 22 literally says that the only people in Israel left that had weapons were Saul and Jonathan. So again, things are not looking good for God's people. At the beginning of chapter 14, Saul is portrayed as a a passive, inactive leader who's sitting under a pomegranate tree just passing the time and really not doing anything at all to be the leader of God's people like he had been called to be. He's just like there. He's just hanging out. But Jonathan, on the other hand, was ready for action. He was ready to stand up for God's people and take action and trust that when he took action, the Lord would show up and do great things. So There were plenty of Old Testament promises and even commands that, that Saul should have and would have known about that, would have, that it would have pushed him to action if he wanted to be pushed. Things like Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, which says this, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an ar- army larger than your own, You shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory." Saul would have known that, and it should have pushed him to take action, but Jonathan was the only one who was ready to live full of faith. He didn't even tell Saul what he was about to do, and maybe that's an indication of of how out of it uh, Jonathan knew Saul was at this point, but again, Jonathan's ready to live full of faith, and look with me at what happens in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. In chapter 14, verses 6 through 15, here's what happens. Jonathan says to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us by many or by few. That's full of faith. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign for us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel, again full of faith. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. See, in other words, God was working to deliver his people when Jonathan lived full of faith. See, Jonathan knew that living full of faith means sometimes you might be in the numerical minority, but you plus God is always the majority. Living full of faith means that the odds might be stacked against you, and the path ahead might Not make a whole lot of sense at all, but you're still willing to trust God and be courageous. Living full of faith means taking action, even maybe with great risk to yourself, when it would be way easier to just sit back and start pointing fingers at all the people that should have been leading the charge here. They could point fingers at Saul. Living full of faith means living in such a way that if God's not in what you're doing, you will fall flat on your face. And that's how Jonathan lived. He lived full of faith. Do you? Saul didn't. See, while Jonathan was living full of faith, King Me was sitting on the sidelines waiting to jump in and reap the benefits of others when it was convenient for him. Because to sum up what comes next in verses 16 through 23, Saul's lookout saw the commotion that was going on in the camp off in the distance, and they told Saul about it. And that's that's literally the first time that he even realized his son was missing. And at least on the surface, the next thing that Saul does seems to be a good idea. He calls for the priest to get some answers from God about what's going on, but he's, he's honestly really not interested at all in what, what God has to say because as soon as he sees that the battle is getting better, he literally tells the priest to knock it off. Like, don't waste your time. Put all that stuff away. Uh, clearly we're fine here. We don't need God. It's time for me to just jump in. In other words, while Jonathan was living full of faith, All Saul was doing was playing religious games because King Me tries to reap the benefits of others living full of faith. See, listen, there's a big difference between playing religious games and actually living full of faith. In fact, playing religious games is the opposite of living full of faith. So I've got to ask you this morning, which are you? Which side are you leaning towards? Just so we're clear, let's define that a little bit so we can evaluate ourselves honestly Playing religious games keeps up outward appearances, but living full of faith experiences inward transformation. Playing religious games lets anything go as long as everyone around you is happy, but but living full of faith sits down for coffee with a friend when you're watching them make decisions and walking away from Christ and lovingly points out the sin in their life and lovingly points them back to Jesus Christ. Playing religious games drops a $20 bill on the offering plate to do your religious duty. But living full of faith understands that literally everything you have is a gift from God to be stewarded for His glory and for His kingdom and His purposes, not yours. Playing religious games associates with holiness and godliness and Christ likeness. It's, it's around, it's hanging there. But living full of faith actually pursues holiness and godliness. Christ-likeness. And we can make a million different comparisons there, but you get the point. One of them is, while the other one just acts like. Again, which are you? So Saul sat back and played the religious games while Jonathan lived full of faith, but he was way more than ready to to reap the benefits of, of what Jonathan had started. The text makes it very clear that by the time Saul and his men actually showed up to the battle, there wasn't a whole lot left for them to do. And Jonathan's faith had, had led them to action and gotten this whole thing started, but now the Lord is taking care of business. It says the Philistine camp was in such chaos and confusion that the Philistines were literally fighting and killing each other because they were confused and, and the rest are just running away. It's crazy. Let's just be really clear here. Saul didn't do that. Jonathan didn't do that either. The Lord did that. We've seen him run that play before because that's exactly what happens with Gideon in Judges chapter 7. But just so that nobody misses the point, the text makes it very clear in verse 23 of chapter 14 where it says this, It was the Lord who saved Israel that day. It was the Lord who saved Israel that day. Despite King Me and his lack of faith in action, Yahweh cared for his people. I love that, the faithful God who shows up to be faithful even when we're faithless. But let's move on because the story is not over yet and King Me is not done rearing his ugly head. Number three, the third characteristic of King Me this morning is that King Me has has unnecessary expectations that end up hurting everyone. That King Me has unnecessary expectations that end up hurting Everyone. Look with me at chapter 14, starting in verse 24, where we see this. 1 Samuel 14, 24 says this, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. That's a red flag. It's not God anymore. It's it's his, his avenging that he looks for and his enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. And they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood." Well, I'm probably about the least knowledgeable person on earth when it comes to pop culture and current trends. And so I know what I'm about to say is going to make me sound very lame and uncool. Uh, but every once in a while, a phrase comes along in pop culture that is just too good to pass up for a sermon illustration. So bear with me here. But maybe you've heard the word extra uh, being used in the phrase, don't be extra, or "or he's so extra, or, or she's so extra. And in case you don't know what that means... It means to be over the top unnecessary to the point where everything's just a dramatic show. It means doing so much that you end up being absolutely ridiculous in life. To put it very clearly, what we see here in the end of chapter 14, Saul's being extra. He's being very extra. See, it's been a long, hard day of battle and Saul being the the wise and godly and rational leader that he is. And if you don't know that, that's called sarcasm right there. Uh, He decides to make this vow before the Lord that, that banned all of his soldiers from eating until the end of the day or else they would be cursed. Let's be very clear, there's absolutely no biblical precedent or reasoning for that. The only explanation here is that Saul is continuing to play his religious games. What he's doing is he's putting an unnecessary expectation on everybody in order to win God's favor as if doing something that God never asked him to do was going to somehow win him some more brownie points with God. Again, Saul's being extra here. Let's just think about how unnecessary and unwise this is. Let's just, let's just start with unnecessary. I mean, God's clearly already giving them the victory. God's already with them. He, he can't be any more with them and for them than he already is. And so as far as being unwise, though, these men are tired, hungry, and physically exhausted. So so telling them they can't eat makes about as much sense as a high school football coach in Texas running two-a-day practices in the middle of the summer heat, telling all of his players, look, 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 we're going to get rid of the the, the water coolers and the Gatorade because we're going to prove that we're real men here, right? They might prove something for a little while, but eventually somebody's going to have to start calling 911 and some people are going to end up in the hospital, So the expectations Saul's putting on people here are unnecessary and unwise. In in reality, the expectations he's putting on people here are basically just an Old Testament form of legalism. Legalism is adding anything to the simple message of the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of our own works so that we don't boast. Legalism is adding rules and requirements to yourself or someone else in order to to prove that you or they measure up to God's standards, when in reality, none of us measure up to God's standards at all. Here's the thing, King Me thrives in a culture of legalism because in a culture of legalism, King Me gets to give himself a promotion and start playing God. In the culture of legalism, King Me gets to make rules that God never made and expect others to follow them. In a culture of legalism, King Me gets to show up and, and dictate how other people are supposed to live and act in areas where Scripture is completely silent. And that's the key here, because there's a very fine line between what we perceive as legalism and holiness. They can look so much alike in, partic- in practice sometimes that it's easy for us to convince ourselves that we're actually pursuing holiness when in reality we're just being, re- we're just being legalistic. But again, that's the difference here. Legalism... Pursues perfection in areas where scripture is silent. But holiness pursues perfection in areas where scripture clearly speaks. See, Many of us grew up in legalistic church cultures where we knew more about the rules than we did about Jesus. And where the word grace was only the word that came after the word amazing in one of the hymns that we sung. I mean, we should reject that kind of legalism, but that doesn't mean that we're out of the woods yet, because there's another kind of legalism that's just as dangerous for us today. So we have to be careful not to create a culture of legalism out of our license and liberty that we've now discovered. For instance, give some examples here. While Scripture is clear that it is a sin to be drunk, it is never fully prohibiting the the drinking of alcohol, it says to be wise. And yet, while we usually associate legalism with angry preachers screaming about drinking, it's entirely possible to have a legalistic heart that looks down on those who choose not to exercise their liberty to drink. Or another example, Scripture has a lot to say about worship. In the legalism culture that a lot of us grew up in, those cultures have a lot to say about, about music, and it's usually associated with having conservative music standards. But listen, while it's entirely it's also entirely possible to have a legalistic heart that looks down on others who prefer not to worship with jumping around and rocking out. See, the reality is that both ends of the legalism spectrum are just as dangerous and just as anti-gospel, and that's why God has given us a conscience so that we can live under the umbrella, within the window of, uh, of what he has deemed as permissible for his people, and so that we can disagree with each other and still live in unity with one another. So on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 14, it should have been left to a matter of conscience for the men to decide whether or not they decided, wanted to, to fast in the middle of a fight. But the moment that King Me showed up with his unnecessary expectations, he started creating problems for everyone. We I mean, just think about the problems that King Me created in 1 Samuel 14. The soldiers would go on to save his life, but it essentially sentenced Jonathan to death because he hadn't heard about Saul's vow. So it put someone literally in danger. At the end of the day, the Israelites were so hungry that that once the fast was over, they just started killing every animal they saw and and eating it in a way that would have broken pretty much all of the Old Testament dietary laws at one time. And so this vow caused other people to sin. Long term, even though we don't have time to dig into the rest of chapter 14, Saul's legalism created such a problem because they ended up not finishing the battle with the Philistines. And as as a result of that, Saul spent the rest of his life Fighting against the Philistines. Verse 52 at the end of the chapter says there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. That's a steep price to pay for an unnecessary expectation. But that's exactly what legalism does. It creates a treadmill for yourself and for other people that you can never get off of. You just gotta keep running on the treadmill. You can't get off. All because of King Me. So King Me takes matters into my own hands when God's timing isn't enough, and King Me tries to reap the benefits of others living full of faith. And King Me has expectations that end up hurting everyone. And number four, here's the final characteristic of King Me that we'll look at this morning. Number four, King Me thinks it's okay to do whatever I want as long as I have good intentions. King Me thinks it's okay to do whatever I want as long as I have good intentions. Even some more time passes between chapters 14 and 15, so this is basically like an entirely new episode in the life of Saul, but he still hasn't learned his lesson. In fact, 1 Samuel 15 is basically the final nail in the coffin of King Saul's reign. Samuel's back in the picture, and he shows up with some some very clear instructions for Saul, And, and just so we're clear on what those instructions were, look with me at the beginning of chapter 15 in verses 1 through 3 at the beginning of chapter 15 says, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. In other words, obey Saul. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God told Samuel to go tell Saul to go wipe out the Amalekites, every last one of them, man, woman, child, and livestock. And before we collectively gasp and say, how dare God do something like that? What right does he have? Why would he do that to a people? Let's get a little bit of background here before we jump to those conclusions. See, this wasn't just like God woke up on the wrong side of the bed one morning and decided to flex. This wasn't even a war for the Israelites to expand their territory. The Amalekites were people who had attacked the Israelites when they were defenseless on their way out of Egypt and headed for the Promised Land. But it didn't stop there. Throughout Israel's history, the Amalekites just never went away. They were constantly attacking and provoking and pillaging Israel at every opportunity they had. And historians tell us that they were even known for their excessive violence and and brutality. And so so finally God just drew a line in the sand and said, that's enough. No more. You're not going to keep doing that to my my people. You're not going to keep going on and doing these things. So he was finally going to deal with their wickedness. And he tasked Saul with eliminating them. And so as you can probably guess based on Saul's track record that we've looked at this morning, uh, this isn't going to go so well. And so spoiler alert, the the way that we're going to wrap up 1 Samuel 15 this morning is to look at the anatomy of a fall. We're going to look at the anatomy of a fall. First, there's disobedience. Saul went to war with the Amalekites, and he did beat them. But look at verse 9. It says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So here's what happened. We have to understand that apparently Saul didn't understand. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. That partial obedience is complete disobedience. If anything, Saul should have already learned that lesson back in chapter 13. We've already seen him make this mistake before, but he didn't learn his lesson. So here again, God was very clear with Saul to go kill everything, get rid of everything, but he disobeyed. See, obedience is doing the right thing in the right way at the right time, with the right motives, that's what we expect of our children, is it not? And that's what God expects of us. He's even written, down, written it down for us in his word, and while we might have some questions about, about certain implications and applications of what we read in his word, for the most part, just like he was extremely clear with Saul, God couldn't be any clearer with us. Don't lie. Forgive one another. Don't hold grudges. Share the gospel with the lost around you. Respect those in the government that are in authority over you, whether you like them or not. Husbands, love your wives and live with them in a patient and understanding manner. But isn't it amazing how easy for it is for us to, to justify our disobedience? All it takes from us is a simple, but, 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 but you don't know all the details. Like you, don't, you don't live in the house with that person. You don't know what, like, there's reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing. You don't have all the details. You don't know everything that's going on here. No, I don't, but I'm pretty sure God does. And he expects obedience from his children. So moving on in the anatomy of a fall, next, there's dishonesty. Like I just said, God knows our disobedience, and he knew Saul's too. And he told Samuel what Saul had done, and it broke Samuel. Verse 11 says that Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Then he got up to go confront Saul. And let's not miss this. When Samuel got to where he thought Saul was, what he found when he got there was a monument that Saul had built for himself. I Talk about King me. He was literally celebrating his disobedience as if it were this, this great victory for himself because he couldn't even be honest with himself about his own sin. Then look at what he tells Sam, what. Samuel tells Saul, and they they have a conversation here when he finally catches up to him. Look at verse 13 of chapter 15. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, here's what he leads with here. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them out from the Amalekites for the the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said, stop. See, this is what happens here. Saul was literally caught red-handed. He lied to Samuel's face, and while he was doing it, Samuel heard the evidence of Saul's sin mooing in the background, literally. And I'm sure in that moment, his, his stomach dropped, his, his pulse it sped up, he started, he started, started sweating, and, and, and you know the feeling, right? Yep. Ever been caught in your own sin? It's painful to have the darkness of your life pulled into the light, isn't it? So maybe you're here this morning and you're pulling a saw right now. You're living in sin and you're lying through your teeth. You're putting on a fake front at church, you're lying to your friends about the reality of what's going on in your life and your marriage and at home. Maybe you're even hiding your sin from your spouse while the evidence of your sin is mooing in the background for everyone who wants to look objectively at your life can see it and hear it clearly. And I just plead with you this morning to stop that. Drag your sin into the light, pursue repentance and get help. I know that's scary. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. And here's why it's scary for us. It's, it, we, we convince ourselves it's scary because we fear shame. That's what we really fear. We, we, we fear shame. But the good news of the gospel is that when you willingly drag things into the light and publicly pursue repentance before Jesus Christ, there is no shame. Now, let's be clear there still might be consequences, but there is no shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't live in dishonesty about your sin and wait for a Samuel to confront you. Drag your sin into the light. Go find somebody you can trust and share with him. Open up your heart and your life and say, here's what's going on, and I need you to help me, and I need, I I don't know what else to do, but I I need you to point me to Christ, I need you to help me, I need you to walk with me, I need you to, to keep me accountable. But don't try to bury it and do it alone. That never works. The next step in the anatomy of a fall is deflection. Samuel literally told Saul to just stop talking. And then he asked Saul why he disobeyed. And here's what Saul says. Look at at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 15. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag out of uh, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, the people, they took over the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. In other words, they did it. You ever hear that one? Ever ever go with that excuse when you've been confronted with your own sin? It wasn't my fault. I I did most of what I was supposed to do. I I was fine. It was them. They did it but it was Saul's fault. Saul was the one responsible. He was the one in charge. He was the one that that God had instructed. And back up in verse 9, the narrator of this passage has already told us very clearly it was Saul that had disobeyed the Lord. And then he was dishonest, and now he's deflecting. And King Me, see King Me wants others to take the fall. But notice that he doesn't just reflect that it happened, he also deflects why it happened. He, he has the audacity to try to excuse his sin by saying that he did it in order to serve the Lord. So it has to be okay, right? He says he kept the livestock alive so that they could sacrifice them, and, and this is where we need to simply understand that good intentions are never, let me repeat there, good intentions are never a reason to sin. That's the lie that King Me tells us when he shows up in our lives. Right? I can do whatever I want as long as I have good intentions. So here's Samuel's response to that in verses 22 and 23. He says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In other words, Saul, God doesn't care about your words or your money or your time or your good intentions or or your motives or whatever you want to say it is, as long as those things are just in your mind a little thing to keep God happy. He wants your obedience. He wants your heart to be fully surrendered to him. Because remember, King Jesus and King me can't reign on the throne of my heart at the same time. The next in the anatomy of the fall is displaced fear. In verse 24, Saul's finally a little bit honest when he admits that the reason of all this happening, he says the reason he gave in, the reason that he fell is because he feared other people more than he feared the Lord. That's what it says in verse 24. All I'll say about that is let's let, let that be a caution to us. Fear God, not people. And finally, the last part of the anatomy of a fall is declined repentance. Repentance declined repentance. Saul goes on to say some, some things in the rest of chapter 15 that sound nice, but he, he never truly pursued repentance in his life. All he wants for the rest of the chapter is for Samuel to help him save some face in front of the people. In verse 30, Saul literally says, yeah, I sinned. All right, I'll, I'll fess up to it. I, I sinned. But come on, Samuel, we got a good thing going on here. Let's go. Let's get out in front of the people. Let's do some PR. We'll, we'll, we'll do some honoring things and, and, and things. We'll, we'll smooth it all over. We'll, we'll just keep going. That's not repentance. And Samuel won't do it. And even that brings out a little moment of anger from King Me when Saul tries to physically force Samuel to stay there and do what he wants and ends up ripping Samuel's robe. And in that moment, Samuel turns to Saul and says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. Listen, Saul's positional consequences in his role as the king of Israel might have already been given, but that doesn't mean that his personal repentance was ever off the table. He still could have returned to the Lord and humbled himself in true repentance. But from everything that we can see, he he never did that in his life. From here on out, for the rest of Saul's life, things only get worse. His heart only gets harder. And even that's a caution for us. No matter how deep in your sin you find yourself this morning, Please don't harden your heart. Humble yourself and pursue true repentance. Christ is waiting for you with open arms to to lavish upon you grace and mercy. This passage ends in an incredibly ugly way with Samuel finishing Saul's job of killing the Amalekites king Agag. It's a gross and gruesome and, and, and wretched and, and really a, a, a perfect picture of the reality of the, the horribleness of our own sin. And so maybe you come to the end of these tractors, tra- 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 you're like, why in the world is this in the Bible? What's the point? Like, I, 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 I get it, I see it, some, some, some suffering, but why is this here? We get the answer to that all the way back in chapter 10, again, at Saul's coronation, one at the time, there's a couple of guys that are called worthless fellows standing around in the corners, and they're having a conversation with each other. They're just talking and watching the celebration off in the distance. And one of them turns to the other and says a very profound question. They're looking at what's going on here, and they say, how can this man save us? How, how can this guy save us? And the answer, of course, is he can't couldn't. They needed someone better. And so do we. And that someone better is King Jesus. Because King Jesus came to save us from King me. Came to save us from all the times that we've gotten frustrated and and taken matters into our own hands. He came to to save us from all of our religious games. Came to save us from our legalism. And yes, he even came to save us from our good intentions came to save us from all our sins he he came and lived the perfect life that you and i could never live and then he he went to the cross to to take the penalty for our sins that we rightly deserved and died in our place and shed his own blood for us think about this king jesus is the only king who died for his people instead of demanding that his people die for him what a king And no matter who you are or what you've done, he's waiting with open arms for you this morning to to receive you and to lavish mercy and grace on you and to to receive you back to him in repentance if you pursue repentance. If you'll just turn from your sins and place your faith in him alone for salvation. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, or if you're here this morning and you have done it and and you you know it's time to come back, would you do it this morning? Run to Jesus. I'd love to talk with you after the service about what the gospel will look like in your life or how you can find your way back to him. But if you have done that, if you do know Jesus, I just want to remind you, that's your king. That's your king. So let's let's worship him and serve him alone because King Jesus and and King me cannot reign on the throne of our hearts at the same time. So let's worship the right one. Let's follow the right one. Let's give our lives to the right one let's pray while the worship team comes Father we don't deserve your grace and mercy there's far more of King Saul and King me in us than we would ever like to admit and that's why we need your son that's why we need grace Father you've given us so much grace help us to understand our need for it and to run to it and to trust you. Father, collectively, forgive us for all the times that we've tried to take matters into our own hands. Forgive us for the times that that we've we, we've chosen to play religious games. Forgive us for the times that we've put out necessary expectations on people that are more than what you would have for them to do and for us to do. Forgive us for making excuses for our sin. Saying, I can do what I want. Father, soften our hearts. The scariest thing in this passage, Father, is watching Saul being confronted with his sin and saying, I don't care. Do what he wants. Don't let that be us. Soften our hearts. Draw us to you. Let your loving kindness lead us to repentance and to receive your mercy. Father, be glorified in the worship that we're about to give. In Jesus' name, amen.